invite you to turn to Mark 8. Mark 8. We'll be looking at verses 14 to 26. And this worked well for me last time, so we'll see how it does today. Titled this, Discipled Despite Dullness. Discipled Despite Dullness. Now, some of you know that I work bivocationally and in addition to my responsibilities here at the church, at least for a short while anyway. And I'd like to tell you just a brief bit about two individuals that I work with. They are the teachers that I, that I help in the classroom, and they are quite exemplary. I can't speak highly enough about them because of the character that they demonstrate while they work with their students. Teaching students requires teachers to be adaptable. No two children are taught exactly the same way. And sometimes in order to teach this child, you can't take what you, the way that you taught this child. You need to modify your approach. You need to adapt. Teaching students requires a, the teacher to be flexible. Teaching students requires the teacher to be selfless. Because the last time I checked, students are just little people, and people are sinful. And to teach requires selflessness and kindness. Teaching requires the teacher, I think perhaps one of the most important qualities, requires the teacher to be patient. Patient. And these two teachers of whom I speak about are exemplary because despite the whole gamut of obstacles and setbacks that they have, sometimes from their students, sometimes from their coworkers, sometimes from administration, they are exemplary because despite all of those setbacks, I see these teachers do their job faithfully, patiently. I see them exhibit sympathy. I see them show compassion. I see them show kindness, and they do most everything well. And despite all of their setbacks, despite all the obstacles in their path, what, what really inspires me when I see them do their job is the joy that they have when they help their students, despite their setbacks, reach their goals. And I look and I see the fact that their students reach their goals through the support and through the leadership of these two individuals. That inspires me. Well, we see in our passage today the Lord Jesus Christ being, in a, in a similar vein, a patient teacher for his 12 disciples. He, too, is exemplary as he has not only endured with much patience the setbacks of the 12, but as we'll see in today's text and next week's text, the Lord Jesus finishes everything he starts. And he will lead these students of his to the completion of their goal, namely to be gospel-grounded fishers of men. And the way I divide this text, it'll be in three parts. From verses 14 to 16, we'll see... The disciples' dull vision expressed. 
in verses 17 to 21, we'll see their dull vision assessed. And then in verses 22 to 26, we'll see their dull vision illustrated and, important, more importantly, alleviated. Verses 14 to 16 reads, And they had forgotten to take bread, and did not have more than one loaf in the boat with them. And he was giving orders to them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. They began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. Now, knowing that the shadow of Calvary is looming closer day by day, our Lord Jesus knows that he must spend his remaining time shaping his disciples. It is through their apostolic witness and their apostolic teaching and preaching that they will become the foundation of the church. It's not their personality. It's not their worldly accomplishments. It's not their charisma. It is their apostolic teaching and preaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. Through these men, the gospel will hit Jerusalem like an evangelical wrecking ball. And after that, it will hit Judea and Samaria and all the way to the ends of the known world, even reaching Rome. Jesus, if you remember, had told them in the beginning of Mark's gospel in verses in chapter one, verse 17, he he tells the disciples, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And I don't know about you, but these disciples aren't exactly shaping up in the texts that we have been reading. They're not exactly showing to be promising material, are they? Now, now I want you to, to put on your imaginary cap and, and imagine that, you, that, 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 that a guy calls you to be his disciple. He calls you to follow him and to learn from him. And on your travels with him, you see all sorts of amazing and wonderful and marvelous things. Over the course of two years, you see him day after day after day healing the incurable, healing everybody that comes to him and turning absolutely nobody away. Nobody leaves untouched, unhealed. There's not a single malady he can't instantly cure. There's no disability or handicap or impairment that this guy can't restore people back to 100% biological perfection. There's no demon that crosses his path that he can't command and and not get immediate, instantaneous submission and obedience. There's no meteorological phenomena. There's no no weather that can deny him. The, The greatest storms, the fiercest typhoons shut their mouths, as it were, when he tells them to be quiet. He turns great storms into great calms. And in a moment produces tranquil serenity where there was but a hurricane a moment before. And for two years, this is the stuff that you see on a regular basis. I mean, maybe not on Tuesdays, but you see these things regularly. And there's nothing this guy can't do. He really honestly seems to have the power of God at his disposal. The power of God is with him. And and then twice, not once, 
but twice. Just like God leading the children of Israel in the wilderness and feeding them manna so that they don't perish and so that they all have something to eat, this guy with a small handful of bread feeds an entire stadium of people, not once, but twice. Now, after seeing stuff like that, after seeing the stuff that this man can do, especially on two occasions, multiplying bread, should the menial, mundane discovery that you forgot to bring a couple extra wafers derail you? Should that concern you after everything you've seen? Yes or no? Okay, good. Well, that's precisely what these students of the Lord Jesus do. They do not grasp who it is that's in their midst. And who is in their midst? Mark has told us in his thesis statement, in his purpose statement, in his reason for writing in Mark 1, 1, beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Since Mark 1, we have seen Jesus bringing the power of God in situations where men and women are utterly, utterly, completely devoid of hope. Those suffering from disability, healed. The blind, they see. The mute, they speak. The deaf, they hear. Those suffering from leprosy, those with unrelenting hemorrhages, healed in a moment. Those suffering from demonic possession, freed and found in their right mind. And even the dead, even the dead were raised and given back to their loved ones. There's nothing this guy can't do. There's nothing Jesus can't do. Now, while these miracles made Jesus very popular with the crowds and with the people for a while, we saw from the very beginning there was a group that wasn't impressed, right? Who were they? Pharisees, good the stewards, the the gatekeepers of the law. And Jesus has just encountered them in verses, what is that, 12 to 13, 11 and 12. He has just encountered these Pharisees. Verse 11 says they came out to argue with him. Apparently the signs that he's been doing for the last two years, the, the signs, those were just regular signs. Those were just regular healings and regular raisings of the dead. They want something more. They they want a they want a sign from heaven. They want a sign from the skies. Now beloved, I hope even I hope we can all see that this is just a trap with a thin veneer of religious piety. This is a trap for Jesus. If he did do the sign, they could do what what he, after he had done other signs and just say, well, you do that by the power of Satan. So there's that. Or they could just demand more signs. So he's trapped if he does it. If he doesn't do it, well, then they can say he's a fraud. He can't do it. So rather than answer them, he just says no. The Lord tells the Pharisees no, that... 
and, and the Pharisees and those with them and those who followed them, they had their opportunity to embrace the light. They had seen sign after sign after sign, and they had seen more than enough evidence to show beyond a shadow of a doubt this Jesus of Nazareth is, in fact, the Son of God. And you want to know how I know that for a fact that they had enough evidence? In John 3, 2, Nicodemus, whom Jesus calls the teacher of Israel, the, perhaps being one of the leading teachers within the Pharisees, he says to Jesus, we, and who's we? He's speaking on behalf of the other Pharisaic group. He says, we know you are a teacher come from God because nobody can do these things unless God is with him. They had seen plenty, but their hearts were hard. Their hearts were hard, and they were thoroughly entrenched in a system of formalism, of external religiosity, which made, in their eyes, faith and repentance unnecessary. In fact, it made faith and repentance scandalous, offensive. That was their leaven. That was the leaven of the Pharisees, that hard-heartedness rooted in formalism and external religiosity that Jesus is warning his disciples to be wary of and to avoid at all costs. He says, beware, watch out, emphatic. Watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees. And Herod had his leaven to worldliness, and a love for sensuality, a love for one's sin that hardens the heart. Remember, Herod heard John the Baptist. He used to enjoy listening to John the Baptist. And he heard John preach over and over and over and over. And did Herod convert? Did Herod repent? No. Herod had seen enough light too. The time is coming, beloved, when Jesus' ministry would be handed over to these 12, and it was through them. It is through their apostolic ministry that the gospel would spread. And as Ephesians 2.20 says, that the church would be founded upon them. They would need to be steadfastly holding to this gospel of grace and truth. They need to be grounded on it. They need to be firm on it. And they need to be able to defend it against any and all opposing influences that, that, that produce and that lead to hard hearts, that lead to calloused hearts like legalism, formalism, religious externalism, or, or, or worldliness, sensuality. And that's why he is adamantly warning them. He is, having, he is trying to have a heart-to-heart moment and say, guys, be careful. This stuff is poison. It will influence you in ways you don't see. Beware of that leaven. And are the 12 listening? Do they have sober ears? Are they, are they picking up what Jesus is laying down? Are they, are they sipping what he's brewing? No. They, verse 16 says, they were deeply moved by these warnings that Jesus said, right? They were cut to the, they were cut to the core because of Jesus' heart-to-heart moment, right? Oh, they begin to discuss one another, the fact that they had no bread. 
they hear the word leaven and that makes them think about food. And, and then they realize that uh, having crossed from one side of the lake to the other in the boat, that somebody, whoever's job it was, they forgot to bring a couple extra pieces of bread. There's, there's 13 mouths last time I checked, the 12 and Jesus. And verse 14, Mark takes extra papyri and extra ink to tell us what? They forgot to bring bread. And except for that one loaf, they ain't got nothing. And it hits them like a ton of bricks. And when they should be spiritually sober, when they should, when they should be hearing the things that Jesus is saying to them, they are mundanely minded. They miss the point of Jesus, beloved. This is the disciples' dullness expressed. Can we see that? And then in verses 17 to 21, Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do, do you not yet see? You know, no, I'm sorry. I need to read that with a little more angst because I'm trying, I need to. Why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Just a a little frustration in there. Do you not yet see or understand? Do you have a hardened heart? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? Do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of pieces you picked up? They said 12. When I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets? Remember, these are the hamperfuls, the, the man baskets, the maskets. The pieces were left over. How, how, many, how many large baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said to him, seven. And he was saying to them, do you not yet understand? Now, Jesus has already told these men that he would make them fishers of men. He's, he, and he's told them in, verses, in chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, he said, To you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. You are privileged people. To you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. But to those who are outside, they get everything in parables, so that while seeing, they may see and not perceive. And while hearing, they may hear and not understand. Otherwise, they might return. They might repent and be forgiven. In other words, those outside the kingdom are characterized as being those who who have ears, but they don't use them. They're not listening ears. And who have eyes, but they don't understand. They don't have perceiving eyes. Spiritually speaking, these are people who can't put two and two together. And and yet that's how these disciples are acting. They've been given light. They are those who are on the inside. They have been with Jesus and following Jesus and learning from Jesus. And yet they they are spiritually dull and spiritually slow. 
and if appearances are anything to judge by, then those who are inside are acting and look like those who are on the outside. So what, in, in layman's terms, what gives, fellas? What gives? And what's pitiful about the 12 right now is not only are they failing to grasp the, the teaching that Jesus has just given them to beware of, the, of things that might influence you towards a hard heart, they have utterly failed to grasp the meaning of the previous miracles which Jesus has just done. Namely, the feeding of the 5,000, which we looked at back in the middle of chapter 6, and the feeding of the 4,000, which happened at the beginning of this chapter, not that long ago. That's why Jesus brings them both up. He, He recounts both of them in verses 19 and 20. You can see it right there. I mean, they, these men know that the power of God is with Jesus somehow. They, they know that he is special, but they have failed to grasp that it is the creator who's standing in their midst with them. And when the creator, when the sustainer, when the savior is standing in your midst, you don't need to worry about something mundane like, where are we going to find bread? Where are we going to get something to eat? Now, Jesus does something here that all good teachers do. And that's rather than merely telling them what to think and merely telling them what to do, he's asking questions. He's he's forcing them to draw conclusions. That's what good teachers do. Notice that he isn't calling them names. He's not berating them. He's asking provocative questions whereby these men must produce conclusions. They must provide answers on their own he wants them to think for themselves think this through to you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of god why then are you thinking like those who are on the outside to you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of god why are you hearing and seeing and perceiving and acting like nothing's been given to you why why do you act like someone who has a hardened heart. Does that that sound like hard words? Does that sound like those could be confronting words? And I wonder, did they try to answer that? Did they come up with some kind of a defense or a response that Mark doesn't tell us? We don't know. Now, another... Another thing that good teachers do is they provide illustrations to to drive home their points. And I believe that's what Jesus does. Jesus does that very same thing right here with the 12 in verses 22 to 26. He illustrates their their dull vision, and he also provides the basis for alleviating it. Verse 22 says, And they came to Bethsaida. And they brought a blind man to Jesus and implored him to touch him. Taking the blind man by the hand, he brought him out of the village. And after spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men. 
for I see them like trees walking around. Then again, he laid his hands on his eyes and he looked intently and was restored and began to see everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. Well, in this third scene, Jesus and the disciples come to Bethsaida, and the text says that they brought a blind man to him. Now, the context isn't clear. It's either the disciples or the, the people of Bethsaida themselves. We're told in another gospel that some of the apostles are from this town, so maybe they still had family here. Maybe they had friends here, and they go in as some of the home, homegrown boys. And a blind man is brought to Jesus. And they, either being the Bethsaidans or the disciples, they implore Jesus to touch this man. Why? Well, because Jesus has become known as the teacher, but even more so as the healer. And the the means of his healing, the way people have understood him to heal, is that he heals by touch. He heals people by touching them. And we've seen that he heals everybody. Nobody is turned away. Not the pariahs, not the outcasts, not the lepers, not the unclean, not those with long, painful hemorrhages. Nobody is turned away. And the common thought is that people suffering from these kinds of things were thought to be under the curse of God. You remember the blind man in John 9, the disciples asked Jesus, Teacher, who, who sinned, this man or his parents, that, that he was born blind? The thought was if someone is blind or sick or maimed or disabled or possessed, they are, so, they are that way because they are under the curse of God because of their sin. And they were to be avoided. You don't go near these kinds of people. That didn't phase Jesus. He goes right on. And takes this man, just like all the others, touching them and healing them all, lepers, unclean, bleeding, the dead, and here, the blind. He takes him by the hand. Now notice, what what is different between this text and the norm? What is normally going on when Jesus is healing people? Is he surrounded by just a couple or by massive throngs? He's normally, as Marks 10 tells us, and became the norm for about five chapters, Mark 3.10 says, he healed many with the result that those who had afflictions pressed, think of a garlic press, that those who had afflictions pressed around him, they confined him in order that they might touch him. That has been the normal for five chapters. Where are the throngs of people now? Where are the masses of people pressing in around Jesus, pleading to be healed? There's just this one man. Well, if you remember back in chapter 6, Jesus has already been to Bethsaida. And he has done many miracles there. And the people have seen his miracles. They have heard his teaching. And beloved, the sad truth of the fact is, is that these people have rejected him. Matthew eleven twenty 20 to 24 tells us that Jesus had done most 
of his miracles in these towns of Capernaum and Chorazin and Bethsaida. And Bethsaida, with the others, are, are, are listed among towns who, he, Matthew says, will be held to a greater accountability because of their rejection of Jesus. He says, and this is startling, that even Sodom and Gomorrah, the, one of the most depraved illustrations of sin and wickedness in the Old Testament, even Sodom and Gomorrah, if they had seen the kind of things that Jesus had done in Bethsaida, and the kind of things in Capernaum and Chorazin. If Sodom and Gomorrah had seen what these people had seen, those towns would have repented and had been spared. That's a rebuke that the hard-hearted find absolutely offensive and scandalizing. Anybody riding the fence on Jesus surely isn't going to be won over to him now. So their window, like the the Pharisees, is closed. And Jesus is not here for the crowds. He's here for the twelve. And he takes a moment to show mercy and compassion to this man. So he doesn't stay in the village. He takes this blind man. Verse 23 tells us he takes him out of the village. He spits on his eyes and then touches them. Now, why does he spit on his eyes? I don't know. We can speculate on this. It, it could have been a gesture of kindness and sympathy for this man. The man can't see Jesus getting close, and, and he can't see Jesus ministering to him, but he can feel Jesus ministering to him. And, and so perhaps Jesus is actually touching his eyes. And maybe his eyes are painful. Maybe a little bit of spit on Jesus' fingers would act as something of a balm and not irritate his eyes so much. Pure speculation. I don't know for sure why, but he spits on his eyes. And I know that everything Jesus does is merciful and compassionate. So this is compassionate spit right here. And, And he's showing this man. He's up close and personal. He is touching an untouchable. He is touching somebody that people stay away from. He's in his face and he's handling him, leading him by the hand. And Jesus asks him, do you, after spitting and touching him the first time, he says, do you see anything? That's not normal. Jesus doesn't normally stop in the middle of a miracle and ask someone, hey, how, how far along is your healing right now? Is it working yet? Verse 24 tells us that the man says that he sees, but obviously he can't see very clearly. What does he say? I I see men. And they're walking around like trees. Why Why does he say that the men look like trees? I don't know. Men, people are upright with hair on top. Trees are upright with leaves on top. Maybe he has felt a small sapling and thinks that, oh, that, that, this looks kind of like what I felt earlier. Maybe this man could see in his youth as a child. I don't know. But what we can walk away with is, is whether or not this man can see clearly. Does this man see clearly? Does he have eyes that perceive and understand? No, he doesn't. And Mark provides... In, in this man's statement, he provides 
have to, have to geek, grammatically geek out a second. He provides the definite article, which he doesn't say, I see men. He says, I see the men. Why does this man point out a specific group of men? And we know that the crowds aren't with him. Now, while this could be some of the Bethsaidans that brought this man out, I think it's the disciples. Why else would we care that there are uh, that, that there's a particular group of men here. I think it is the disciples. And I think that this is an illustration for them of what their spiritual dullness looks like. They've just heard this man say that he can see them, kind of, but they look like a, a little eucalyptus tree or whatever kind of trees they had. And Jesus is saying, you see that? That's what you guys are like. Good teachers use illustrations. Now, Jesus, not belaboring the point, he proceeds to touch the man a second time. He restores the man's sight in full, allowing him to see everything clearly. Considering what he has just rebuked, considering how he has just soberly rebuked the twelve, and he has shown them visually what their dullness looks like, How could they not be comforted knowing that Jesus fully restored this blind man so that he could see clearly? And if he would do that for this man, if he could help this man see clearly, surely he could do the same for them spiritually. Beloved, isn't it a comfort, isn't it a reassurance to know that your good teacher in heaven is committed to you and that he will see you cross that finish line? Now, what can we walk away from this text with? Four things. First, be patient with the spiritually dull. Be patient. Have patience with the spiritually dull. Those who frustrate you because they don't get it, those who frustrate you because in your eyes they haven't shaped up yet, may one day yet come around and they may yet see the light. Disciples don't get it yet, but beloved, this whole gospel breathes, the whole narrative breathes with the confidence that they will get it, that they will come around, that they will repent of their dullness, and that they will be forgiven and mightily used. And we know from the pages of Acts that they did. We also know from the fact that Jesus has promised that he will make them fishers of men. And Jesus' word is good, so there's that too. So be patient. Secondly, keep yourselves humble and lowly-minded. The danger here is in presuming that there's nothing more for us to learn and that we know it all. Proverbs sixteen eighteen: pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. Let me encourage you, don't be hard-hearted and in so doing place more obstacles in Jesus' path to teach you and to lead you and to shepherd you. Don't make it harder for the Lord than it already is. Jesus rebuked his 12 from their dull, for their dull hearing. Learn from their errors. Third, be patient, or persevere, rather. Persevere in your learning at the feet of Jesus. Persevere, continue, press on, Don't be content to stay where you are in your learning at the feet of Jesus. Use your minds. 
Use your minds and think for yourselves, how does this scripture, how will this scripture bear its fruit in me? How must I change because of my confront, because of the word of God's confrontation with me? What does God want me to do with his word? How do I apply this truth? How do I become a better hearing disciple? How do I become a more disciplined disciple? Beloved, have ears to hear the words of the Lord Jesus and look to him to move you further along to spiritual maturity. Persevere in your learning. Fourth, and perhaps the most important, perhaps the most critical, is to look to Christ for everything look to christ for everything look to him for your comfort look to him for your joy look to him for truth and for learning look to him for everything the the rebuke for the disciples in this text no, call me Valley Bible Church. The rebuke for the disciples is, is due to the fact that they did not understand the question that they themselves asked back in chapter 4, verse 41, after Jesus spoke and the storm stopped. When he turned the mega storm into a mega calm, they said, who then is this man? And after four chapters of that kind of stuff, they still can't answer it right who is this man who heals the sick who raises the dead who casts out demons and who's master of nature beloved he is god he is god he is emmanuel he is god with us he is god with you do you know that has that truth impacted you today? Jesus is God with us. 